Adam and Eve found themselves standing in a garden created just for them, ashamed in the presence of the God that created them. And the shadow of their own sin prepared to listen to the sounds of their sentencing. You see, they had failed. They had one task. They had one purpose. They had one mission. They had one rule. And they couldn't uphold it. And now they knew that they found themselves in a place where there was no turning back. They knew it was going to happen. They knew it was going to come. They knew what was in line for them. And they were just waiting to hear it. But in the midst of darkness and death and hopelessness, some light began to shine through. Because in Genesis chapter 3, as God is laying down the punishment for all of those involved in the first sin in the garden, he starts with a serpent. And he says to the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve, he says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then he says this in verse 13. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And there in that small passage, hidden away in Genesis chapter 3, we have the first mention of the good news of the gospel in all of God's big story. And in Genesis chapter 3, we find out that God was not shocked, nor was he disoriented by sin. That God had a plan. That God had a story, and he knew how that story would end. With the consequences of sin in the garden being unraveled and undone by a hope that was coming. And now normally you don't give away the ending to your story this early. But God can do that. His book sold fine. And in Genesis 3, what we find is not a spoiler to the story, but a promise and a message tucked away at the very beginning of God's story. And this message is a message of hope. And so today, as we finish this sermon series through these big themes and motifs of God's big story in the Old Testament, we're going to end in the exact same place that God does. Just like we saw last week, this, this place of hope pushing forward to something better that was coming. In our text this morning, and it's going to lead us into that mindset of hope, is Psalm chapter 33, verses 12 through 22. And this is the word of God. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not saved by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their souls from death, and he may keep them alive in famine. 
Our soul waits for the Lord, for he is our help and our shield. For our hearts are glad in him because we hope in his, or excuse me, he trusts in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. May the Lord add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the hope that it brings. God, we thank you that even in the most hopeless passage of of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 3, where it looks like everything has gone tragically wrong and fallen apart, that you still had a plan to redeem and to save and to undo everything that sin brought into the world. And Father, we thank you for the source of that hope. And so God, as we sit here in the midst of this Advent season, reading words about hope, help us to be a people of hope and to cling fast to that hope until one day when we don't have to hope anymore because our faith will be made sight. But until then, strengthen us and guide us. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. In Psalm 33 here, we see the God who created the heavens and the earth. The God who made everything by the power of his word, looking down and seeing everything. He sees all that he had made, the thing that he once declared very good. And he sees all the deeds and all of the things that are happening in his creation. And the God who created the heavens and the earth, the book of Psalms tells us, also fashioned the hearts of all the people who live within it. And the God who fashioned the hearts of all those people is now witness to those very hearts that he fashioned in his own image, now longing for and hoping in something else. Someone besides him. And there's an amazing paradox in in this poem, in this song, in Psalm chapter 33, where the psalm is commanding the people to look at God. And his power and his might and his wisdom and all that he's able to do and to put their trust fully in him and to hope fully in God. Meanwhile, all around this psalm, the people of Israel are losing that hope. And even before this psalm was written, they were a people who constantly lost hope in God. And as we saw last week, they will eventually find themselves in a position where their lack of trust in God and their lack of hope in God gets them exactly where that kind of trust and hope will find them. Verse 16 and 17 tells us this important truth, that the king is not saved by his great army, and a warrior is not delivered by his great strength, and the war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue The psalmist is saying all these things that we could put our trust in, all these things that look like they have strength and might and security on their own, they have absolutely nothing. But there's a a touch of irony that this passage of scripture is written in the midst of a people who sometime before this looked at God when he was supposed to be their king and their authority. And they came to God saying, we want a king just like everybody else. We don't like our circumstances. We don't think this is where we should be. And we see all of these other nations thriving and prospering. And that's what we can put our hope in. 
That's something that we can put our trust in. And so God, we want you to give us a king. They wanted to have the same hope as everybody else around them. But why? I think the answer to that is actually pretty simple. Of course it comes from sin, but the reality is that kind of hope, hope in something that you can see, is quicker and it's easier. We are a people, and not just us, not just now, but humanity from the very beginning, we have been a people, we like our food fast, we like our weight short, and we like our hopes to be realized as quickly as they possibly can. Even if that means that we have to trade a good and perfect hope for something far inferior. We're willing to trade something perfect for something not as good and sometimes something far inferior just so that we can have it right now. And that is what was happening in the lives of the people of Israel. They had the perfect king. A perfect king with a perfect plan leading them to a perfect place and putting them there. And they had seen that all through their existence. And yet they saw other people getting what they wanted and how they wanted it a lot faster. And so the people of Israel started looking around saying, how do we get that? Maybe it's not everything that God promised us, but at least we don't have to wait around on it. And so they traded in something perfect for something inferior. But verse 18 says that the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. And we looked a couple weeks ago at the direct connection between wisdom and the fear of the Lord. And so the psalmist is saying the eye of the Lord, the protection of the Lord is on those who fear him. The people who are wise enough to see through the facade that this world brings to us and to recognize the inadequacy of anyone or anything else to be able to guard our hope if it's not God. And the psalmist is saying, you can trust in all of these other things and they may give you some sort of temporary protection or comfort or hope, but it's always going to fail. It's always going to be a false hope. And the psalmist says that the people of God should be different. Verse 20 says, our soul waits for the Lord. And I love that phrase because it's plural and it's singular at the same time. It's this beautiful picture that looks a lot like what Paul was saying in Ephesians when he talked about how we all have one spirit. We all partake in that one spirit. The psalmist says our soul, our one soul, our one spirit is unified by the fact that we are the people of God. Our soul there references those who know the one true God and they worship the one true God. And that's where they find their hope and their strength and their security. And he says, our soul waits for the Lord. For he is our help and our shield and our hearts are glad in him because we trust in his holy name. He says, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. And there we find the trick with hope. It says our soul waits. And we find out that hope involves waiting. But we aren't very good at waiting. And if you want an example of that, we can talk about it because it's very fitting that we're talking about this exact thing in the season of Advent. Because one of the things that you hear Christians get kind of vocally mad about during this time of year is if people don't say Merry Christmas to you. But in reality, it's not Christmas. 
Advent is not a fancy word for Christmas. Advent is its own separate season. And historically, the church didn't celebrate Christmas leading up to December 25th. You would go through the season of Advent and it would be a season of waiting. And so churches would hang greens, but they wouldn't decorate them. And there wouldn't be Christmas parties or exchanging of gifts until December 25th. And that would start the Christmas season that would last until January 5th, which would also be the 12 days of Christmas. If you've ever been curious about where that song came from. But because we like Christmas and we like Christmas lights and we like all of the fanfare and the things that go along with it, even the church itself, we became tired of waiting. And this is not me just throwing rocks out into the wind. I have a Christmas tree in my house. <laughs> if you walk in, you would not find just purple linens all over while we're mourning in Advent. We've got Christmas stuff up too. Because waiting is a very difficult thing for us. But the psalmist is reminding us on a much deeper and more important level, that the place where we put our hope and our trust matters. And the psalmist knows who God is. And because of that, the psalmist is saying, even though there may be quicker solutions to finding my comfort and my security, I am going to wait for the Lord because I know that's where my help comes from. I'm willing to wait for the Lord because he's my help and my shield and my heart can be glad in him because he's never going to fail me because I can trust in his holy name. And while kings and warriors and war horses are going to fall and fail, God never, ever will. And so my heart can be glad in the midst of the waiting. And then he offers up this beautiful prayer saying, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. And I think that's a great prayer for Advent, but also for every day of our lives. Because waiting is hard. It's difficult to wait for God to do things in our lives, especially when we're talking about what we're going to look at in a minute, this big ultimate hope that we have. It's very difficult to wait for that. And it's easy to substitute that with something quicker, even if it's inferior. And so the psalmist comes to God saying, this is, this is hard. My heart's going to rejoice in you and I'm going to be glad in the waiting because I know who you are and what you can do. But that doesn't mean that this is easy. And so while I'm waiting, let your steadfast love be with us. Let your steadfast love rest on us so that we have the strength to be able to wait even as we hope in you. And I love the whole picture of this psalm from, from beginning to this prayer here. Because the psalm really is a reminder that God is not oblivious or neutral to the problems of his people. That he knows that we're suffering, that he knows that we have difficulties, that he knows that waiting is hard for us and that there are things in our lives that cause us stress and pain. But while God is not oblivious or neutral to our problems, he's also not panicked by them. And this psalm is a calling to trust in God's sovereignty. And to hope in God's plan and to wait for his promise. This psalm is this beautiful reminder to all of God's people that God is going to deliver us. We just have to wait and see. But this psalm also does feel a little vague. Because the easy question would be, how? 
So yeah, I believe that God is going to deliver us from, 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 or deliver our souls from death and keep us alive in famine. I, I believe that he has this big promise and that if I just wait on God, then he's going to bring his people to where they're supposed to be. But how? And that's a question that begins to be answered later in God's big story by the prophets. And so the prophets come in and they are the mouthpiece of God. They're God's storytellers. And they begin coming to the people of Israel and laying out the next chapter in God's story. Tell them this is what's about to happen. And we've talked about this a little bit over the past couple weeks, but there's a pattern in the writing of the prophets. And so oftentimes the prophets will start with a warning especially the prophets in and around the time of exile. And they would come to the people and they'd say, listen, things are not going well right now. You guys are sinning, you're turning away from God, and you're heading down a really dangerous path. And so there would be the warning and the call to repentance, but then there would be the proclamation of judgment. And we saw this, remember, when we were talking about the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah comes to the people and he says, it's done. You guys have gone too far and the Babylonians are coming and they're not going to leave and God is going to be fighting with them. This is your judgment and your people are not going to be able to stay in this land anymore and you're going to be taken out of this land that God has given you because of your sin. And so there would be this proclamation of judgment over the people. But then there would be a message of hope. This promise that God has a plan beyond the punishment and beyond the discipline that his people would be dealing with. And they began to put into words a description of that hope. And they took the reins where Genesis 3 and the Psalms and other places left off and began to describe what the hope that God was sending into the world would look like. And through the description of the prophets, we find out that this hope would be human. But he would be different. He would be divine. We find out that this hope would be coming from God and yet he would be humble and approachable. And Walter Kaiser Jr. summarizes these predictions and these prophecies that the Old Testament prophets were seeing about this hope that was coming into the world. He says, first it was predicted that the Messiah or the hope, the chosen one, would be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7. That his birthplace would be in Bethlehem in Micah 5 too. And that there would be a forerunner calling out that he was coming. And we see that in Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3. It was further announced ahead of time that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem in triumph as the crowd shouted, Hosanna. And we see that in Zechariah 9 and in Psalms 118. But in less than a week, he would be betrayed. And we find that in Psalms 69. The Messiah's side would be pierced in Zechariah 12. And he would suffer vicariously for the sins of the world in Isaiah 53. Even more dramatically accurate was the fact that this hope would be killed by the wicked ones in Isaiah 53, 9. But that was not the end of the matter, their predictions about the hope in the Old Testament. For the Messiah would return to earth a second time. And when he would one day rule the city of Jerusalem as the king of kings, as the nations would go up to that city to be taught his ways, never more to train for war. 
in Isaiah 2, 3 through 4. And so by the end of the Old Testament story, we have a much clearer picture of who this hope, who this Messiah would be. And it leaves the people filled with hope. And when you look at what takes place in between the Testaments, in between the Old and New Testaments, and especially right around the time when the New Testament began, you can almost feel that mood of hope in the people's lives. You see it with the rise of the Maccabeans in, in, the, old, in the intertestamental period. You see that with the rise of people trying to find messiahs and put them into place and trying to overthrow the Roman government. You see the people saying, you know what? We remember what the prophet Daniel said, and this is about the right time. And there was a heightened expectation that God was about to send his hope into the world. And in the middle of that expectation, in the middle of those prophecies, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And as the hope of the world enters the world and God's big story continues to be revealed, we see the New Testament writers picking up that story and they want to make something very clear. As we look through the writers like Matthew and John and the writer of Hebrews and even Paul, they remind us over and over again that God's big story in the Old Testament and the hope that it was trying to teach us about is all about Jesus. When the New Testament writers looked back on that Old Testament story, they saw Jesus in every story and in every moment and on every page. And as the writers looked at that Old Testament story and saw Christ, they saw that Jesus was with God in the beginning and that he was God and that he is God. They saw that Jesus was the creator of the universe, telling us that all things were created through him and by him and for him. They remind us that Jesus is the offspring of Eve who was sent to crush the head of the serpent and that he's the fulfillment of the promise to Noah and to Abraham and to Moses and to David. He's the protector of God's people and the hope to the world and he's the law giver and the law keeper and he's the king of kings and lord of lords. They tell us that he brought with him a new and better covenant that put all the pieces together and gave us a new hope. They tell us that he's come to call sinners who are broken and full of failure to become children of God, restored and completed in him. They remind us that he's the conqueror of death who defeated death by death to bring life to God's people. That he's the perfect high priest who entered into the most holy place so that sinners and strangers would feel welcome to come and eat freely under God's hospitality at God's table. That he's the enemy of the oppressor and that he reaches out to the poor and the broken and the needy and he welcomes them in and treats them like family. Like Esther, he stands in the presence of the king interceding on behalf of his people to save his people. They tell us that he is the incarnate word of God and he's the wisdom of God, breaking the silence of God with the good news of the kingdom of God. 
That he is the prophet and the priest and the king. And he is the son of God who came at that exact moment in that fullness of time to bring God's hope into the world. And much like we saw Dr. Kaiser say that he is coming again to finish what he started and to make all things new and to make all things right. And because of that truth, What we find in God's big story from Old Testament to New is that the same Messiah that was the hope of Israel is our hope as well. So what? What do we do with that hope? Tim Keller talks about hope and he tells a story. I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, but he tells a story about two men. And both of these men had the same job. It was a long hour job. It was very monotonous and the same small, simple task over and over and over again. A very, very joyless job for these two men. And both of them received a very low wage. But for one man, he came in and he received his very low wage and he did his job over and over and over again. And he came in and he never wanted to be there. It was monotonous and and boring and not very financially beneficial. But he came in and he did his job, usually not with the best attitude, and he left. The other man comes in and he comes in with a smile on his face. And again, receiving the exact same wages, he worked with joy and was excited about the work that he was doing. And the difference was because this second man was promised that if he came into work and he did a good job every day and he did everything the right way, that at the end of the year that he would receive a million dollars. And so you have two people. Same job, same wages, same menial task, but a different hope. And that hope has the power to change everything. And the hope of God's big story, the Christian hope of Jesus Christ, has a powerful effect on every aspect of our lives. You see, the reality is the life of God's people is often not more exciting or extreme or any less painful than any other lives. And we can see that very clearly in God's big story in the Old Testament. His people had good times and his people had bad times. His people thrived and his people suffered. And we know that that's the same truth for each and every one of us living today. But we have something different. We have hope. And hope in Jesus gives meaning to the mundane. It brings joy in the midst of pain and in the midst of sorrow. It enables us to see our triumphs and our tragedies and our successes and our failures and our sickness and health in the exact right frame that we're supposed to because we realize that as bad as things could possibly be right now, that the hope that we have in Christ is better. And as good as things could possibly be right now, the hope that we have in Christ is better. And so we cling to that hope and we chase after that hope in everything that we do. And the hope that comes from Jesus takes us from the inside out and changes the way that we think and the way that we work and the way that we love and the way that we speak and the way that we do everything. Because we see in the New Testament the command to not mourn like those who have no hope. And we also know that we don't simply rejoice like those who have no hope. We don't do our jobs like those who have no hope. We don't come to church like those who have no hope. We don't go home like those who have no hope because we know that whatever our circumstances is, happen to be, Christ is better. And so we have this calling in God's big story 
to trust in Christ. To not put our hope and our trust in kings or chariots, but to trust only in Jesus Christ who loved us so much that he was willing to give everything for us. And as we trust in Christ, we have that calling to repent and believe the gospel and then cling tightly to that hope that God brought into the world in the fullness of time. And now what do we do with God's big story? As we've looked at all of these themes ranging from creation and covenant and death and failure and silence and hope and everything in between, how do we approach the Old Testament? What do we do with the Old Testament that lays this foundation for the hope that we have in Christ? I think first and foremost, we have to read it. And I understand what I'm asking in a lot of places because sometimes part of the Old Testament can be difficult. And there are parts where it's hard to see the application because sometimes there's not a direct application for us. Sometimes it's telling us the story about who God is and what God has done and how God is bringing about salvation into the world. But just because we don't have a point and click application on what we need to do to change our lives on a Monday, it doesn't mean that that doesn't have incredibly deep application to teaching us the beauty and the grace of the gospel. And so we need to spend time in the Old Testament. We need to read God's big story in the Old Testament. And as we do, we should search for its beauty and its continuity. I told you at the beginning of the series, one of the things that I was hoping to accomplish here is to give us all a framework that we can read the Old Testament and see the Old Testament through so that we can understand the big themes and motifs and try to figure out how this story works. And so as we read, look for the things that tie the story together and that remind us that God is working and moving. And we should see the big story in the Old Testament of a God who so loved the world that even though God's story should have and could have ended at Genesis chapter 3, it didn't because God was not shocked or surprised by the failure of his people, but God had a plan to redeem and to restore his people. And we see that pattern of restoration and deliverance and hope all through the Old Testament. We should also read it like the apostles who when they sat down with these Old Testament texts and heard those Old Testament stories on the other side of the resurrection, they realized all of this is about Jesus. Every page, every story, every person, every act in the Old Testament is leading us up towards Christ and showing us who Jesus was going to be and laying the foundation for Jesus to come into the world. And so let's read God's story in the Old Testament looking for Christ. And then let's read it again. And again, and again, constantly filling our hearts and our souls and our minds with God's story, Old Testament and new, from Genesis to Revelation, seeing the beauty and the majesty of God's big plan and being reminded that even though he created us in his image to bring his glory through the world and we failed in that so miserably through our failure in bringing about death and sin into the world that God loved us so much that before he laid the foundations of the earth, he had a plan to save us and that plan was going to be accomplished through the ultimate hope, his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who he offered up as a sacrifice for sins and then raised from the dead as a hope for his people. And so let's cling to that story and love that story and consume that story as often as we possibly can. 
And until the day when we see that finale, when Christ comes to make everything new, let's be a people of hope who don't trust in kings or warriors or war horses or any sort of shortcut thing that we can, but to place our hope firmly in Christ who makes all things right and all things new. And as we do, let's wait with glad hearts and work while we wait.